Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Michael Thorpe. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome you and thank you for joining us today for the CMEO briefcase entitled Recognizing IH, the Patient Journey to Diagnosis. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals. I'm Professor of Neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Director of the Sleep-Wake Disorder Center, Department of Neurology at the Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York. I'm also President of the New York State Society of Sleep Medicine and the past President of the Sleep Section of the Academy of Neurology. I'm delighted to be joined today by my distinguished colleague, Dr. Paul Dugramji. Paul, could you please introduce yourself? Yes, sure. Hi. Uh, uh, thank you, Dr. Thorpey. Uh, I'm Paul Dugramji. I'm a senior family physician at Collegeville Family Practice uh, and medical director at Ursinus College, both of which are in uh, Collegeville, Pennsylvania. Good. Thank you, Paul. I'm pleased that you've been able to join me for today's discussion. The goal of this activity is to empower learners to screen for idiopathic hypersomnia based on the clinical presentation of the patient and or family caregiver and their description of the function and changes and quality of life. So let's begin with a case. This is a case of Naomi, 22-year-old uh, woman who presents with complaints of being tired all the time despite getting 10 hours of sleep, sleep a day. She is low energy, naps don't refresh her. And uh, she uh, consulted her physician, her pediatrician at the age of 16. And the fatigue was attributed to long hours spent in extracurricular activities and for studying for a class. She does have a class history of uh, depression and uh, she's on oral contraceptives. So uh, before we get into further assessment of Naomi's uh, symptoms, Let's ask our audience our first polling question. So what is it about Naomi's presentation that is specific to the diagnosis of idiopathic hypersomnia? Please make a choice. Yes, that's right. The answer is D, unrefreshing naps. That's very typical for idiopathic hypersomnia for a patient not to feel refreshed after they have naps that may be short or or many cases quite long and yet they're unrefreshing. So um, during the patient visit, patients have many complaints related to idiopathic hypersomnia. And uh, we'll now uh, examine some of those complaints that our patients tell us when they're presenting to us. So Paul, can you discuss how patients present and what type of symptoms they present with when they uh, are coming with idiopathic hypersomnia? Absolutely, yes, Mike. So patients kind of have a variety of different symptoms and we have to be on the lookout for them. Um, we have to be keen on the possibility that they have idiopathic hypersomnia, but let's take a look at some quotes from actual patients. The first one, I can't turn my sleep switch off. So the, the person is excessively sleepy. They're sleepy all the time. They're drowsy, okay? Now they may actually say other words like tired or fatigued, but look out for other symptoms and, and research symptoms that may be going on with them specifically related to sleep. I can't turn my sleep switch off. I'm sleepy all the time. So this is excessive daytime sleepiness. This is one of the hallmark symptoms of idiopathic hypersomnia, too much sleepiness. The second one is I don't ever remember a time when I woke up feeling refreshed. These patients may sleep eight, nine, 10 hours a day, and they still feel as if 
they have not gotten a refreshing night's sleep. Uh, now, this excessive daytime sleepiness typically um, will occur even if they've gotten 10 or more hours of sleep. Uh, so these patients are sleeping quite a bit. And that's an important thing to gather from the uh, sleep histories. How many hours of sleep are you getting? The next one is the biggest loss is true human exchange, which requires remembering, processing information, finding my words quickly, and succinctly following a joke or or engaging in an exchange of activity. So this is also very common, which is cognitive deficits, a brain fog kind of a thing, uh, which uh, permeates through the lives of these patients that are suffering from excessive daytime sleepiness of idiopathic hypersomnia. They simply feel like their mind doesn't work that well. They complain of, again, they might even say brain fog. They may use those words. And finally, this is what idiopathic hypersomnia feels like for me a general anesthetic, so a sleep inertia. Uh, so they, they feel as if even though they're sleeping, uh, even though they're trying to get the best night's sleep that they can, they still are sleepy, they still have brain fog, uh, and they still have a sense of weariness and tiredness. These are some of the things that are important to gather as far as information in our patients that might have idiopathic hypersomnia. Mike? Good. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for explaining those uh presenting symptoms uh, for our audience. Now, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the prevalence? I mean, how common is idiopathic hypersomnia? And patients, do they tend to have other comorbidities that tend to go along with uh, idiopathic hypersomnia? Yes, yeah, so you know, it's interesting that over the years, uh, the, uh, the prevalence of idiopathic hypersomnia has been growing, as you can see on the slide with the different numbers. And the reason for that may be possibly because we are more keen to the, the condition and we're diagnosing more of it um, because uh, we're looking out for it more. But it's quite clear that there are many sufferers in this country with idiopathic hypersomnia where they feel sleepy, they feel tired, they have sleep inertia, and they have the brain fog going on. But another interesting thing is some of the other clues that a patient may give you. Uh, comorbidities are quite common. So sleep apnea uh, may, may be going on. Migraine headaches could be going on. Mood disorders, like in the case that we saw in this patient, uh, she has a history of depression and she has a PHQ-9 that's still a little bit abnormal at nine, which may be misleading into you thinking that her tiredness is from depression. But in fact, again, it could be just a comorbidity. Cardiovascular disease is also a little bit more common in these patients. One other thing is that there's a higher prevalence in women than it is in men uh, and this is another thing to keep in mind with our patients with idiopathic hypersomnia. Mike? Yeah, now, idiopathic hypersomnia often begins in childhood or adolescence, more commonly in adolescence, but it can begin in children. So uh, what does it look like in children? What are some of the characteristic things uh, about uh, idiopathic hypersomnia in children? And uh, how does it affect their quality of life? Well, first of all, you know, there are a lot of things that can happen uh, in, in childhood that can cause the child to feel tired. Uh, narcolepsy with cataplexy can occur, and narcolepsy without cataplexy can occur. So these are some of the things that can happen in children. And by the way, we talked about the, uh, uh, the, the gender, the male to female ratio, as you can see there on the slide, that's also going on there. Idiopathic hypersomnia is, is something that quite commonly can occur pretty early in life uh, in a pediatric group like it in the mid to late adolescence. Uh, so we have to look out for, for children that come into our office that have this 
excessive sleepiness. They're sleeping all the time and they feel tired throughout the day. So it's one of the things that we have to be on the lookout for, but it can be sometimes uh, from uh, narcolepsy as well. So we have to know how to screen for narcolepsy. And we also need to know what kind of tests to run. Uh, specifically, we'll get into this, but, but uh, a sleep study is something that we might need to do in these patients. Um, and as far as the quality of life is concerned, you know, in these patients, they have a significant de uh, decrease in their quality of life. You can see there, it affects their, their academic performance, their physical functioning, social functioning, uh, school functioning, and overall quality of life is dramatically impacted by idiopathic hypersomnia. These uh, parents are coming in complaining to you about their children having problems in their social life, in their school life, and in their home life, and we need to be aware of this. We need to be keenly aware of it. Yeah. And of course, if children have these problems, then they reflect back on the whole family. And so the the parents and other family members have uh, difficulty in dealing with this as well. So can you talk a little bit more about quality of life and uh, uh, some of the other survey data that we have on idiopathic hypersomnia? So not only are uh, patients with idiopathic hypersomnia affected with their symptoms and quality of life, but parents and their family members also struggle too. Here's a table looking at parents that have children with narcolepsy uh, and idi or idiopathic hypersomnia and how their lives are affected compared to control parents. And you can see that in these parents whose children have narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia, there is a decrease in their, uh, in their quality of life specific to physical functioning, emotional functioning, social functioning, school functioning, and overall quality of life. So not only are uh, patients suffering as a result of their idiopathic hypersomnia, but so are parents and family members. Now, it, on the bottom of the slide here, it shows the results from the patient and supporter surveys revealing the far-reaching impact of idiopathic hypersomnia where 80% of patients and 71% of supporters said they significantly underestimated the, the negative effect idiopathic hypersomnia would have on their lives. Very interesting to, to have this statistic. And also on the right side, notice this dramatic set of data. 98% of patients and 96% of supporters agree that idiopathic hypersomnia has a very negative effect on quality of life. So it becomes very imperative for us to, to diagnose this condition early so that we can not only improve uh, the symptoms and quality of life of the patients, but also hopefully improve the uh, quality of life of parents and family members. Right, and of course, uh, children grow up. And of course, when they become adults and the condition persists into adulthood, they have uh, difficulties then too. And there was a, a survey that looked at the uh, the quality of life in uh, the, the adults. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So in this ARISE study, there was seen to be a lower quality of life score for social life and the stigma. There was more severe cognitive complaints, more cases of severe depression, worse presenteeism. Now what presenteeism means that, you know, you're there, you're, whether you're in school, you're in social situation, et cetera, uh, uh, or in your workplace, you're not able to perform to your best of ability. So patients with long time uh, uh, versus without long time experience will will show these difficulties uh, in their situations in life. 
So uh, as you can see there, 84% of patients said that idiopathic hypersomnia has limited their ability to work. Again, that's the presenteeism part. 21% agreed to a hindered their ability to attend school. So if they were in their school situation, they actually missed school time. And 23% reported that it had caused significant financial debt. So maybe as a result of not working well, not working as well as they could, not getting the jobs that they could, it impacted them on their financial situation. So it can permeate into all aspects of their lives. Good. Now, uh, let's move on to our uh, second polling question. Idiopathic hypersomnia is often difficult to get diagnosed, and there's often a great delay in being uh, diagnosed with idiopathic hypersomnia. And about 20% of patients with idiopathic hypersomnia have quite a long uh, time between their onset of symptoms and, and getting a diagnosis and getting care. So please look at the poll, and uh, for 20% of patients diagnosed with IH, how long does it take to receive their diagnosis after seeking care for their symptoms? Please make a choice. Yes, well, it, for 20% of patients, it takes more than 10 years. So it's a long time struggling with these symptoms without getting a, uh, a diagnosis. And um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about this long duration time to getting a diagnosis, Paul. And uh, what impact does it have on the patient when they have to wait so long before they can get diagnosed? It's very common for a patient to come into your office and they're tired, they're fatigued, they're sleeping a lot. And uh, you don't think about idiopathic hypersomnia. You just give them advice, you know, exercise more, uh, take some vitamins, uh, uh, and, and maybe you even diagnose them with depression and you treat them for that. But what they clearly have is idiopathic hypersomnia. Um, because maybe we didn't get a good sleep history and maybe we didn't even do a sleep study or refer them to a sleep specialist. As a result of this, the, the, the diagnosis can be delayed quite a bit. And look at this. The results from the patient and supporter survey showed how long it took patients to receive a diagnosis of idiopathic sinus, uh, hypersomnia after seeking medical attention for the symptoms. 31% said of their patients said that they received their idiopathic diagnosis after one year. That's good. 37% said they took five years, and look about it, a third of them said it took them anywhere from five uh, to, to, to more than 10 years. So 19% of those with idiopathic hypersomnia had to wait more than 10 years after seeking medical care to get the diagnosis. So some of us are doing a pretty good job, but in other situations, it's uh, slipping through our fingers in diagnosing this condition uh, where when diagnosed early enough, we can impact on the quality of life of our patients in, in dramatic ways. So the results from the patient and supporter surveys revealed that nearly two-thirds of patients uh, uh, and uh, strongly or somewhat agreed that the, the person that they care for was misdiagnosed uh, with other medical conditions before being diagnosed with idiopathic hypersomnia. Look out for your patients that are complaining of tiredness, sleepiness during the day, and brain fog and they're sleeping excessively. So this is what we need to do in order for this not to happen to our patients uh, where it takes them so long to be diagnosed. So if we have a patient, Paul, who comes to us with the symptoms that you, you've mentioned, uh, what are the next steps? What about the screening tools uh, for idiopathic hypersomnia? Can you tell us for a start a little bit about the Epworth sleepiness scale and how useful this might be? 
Yeah, and EPR sleepiness scale is a very valuable tool. I know that in my electronic medical records, it's contained there. So all I got to do is to, is to tick the actual uh, uh, box, and it will give me a, a, uh, uh, an answer at the end. It will give me a numerical value. Um, so this is a, a test which is very important when patients come in complaining uh, of excessive daytime sleepiness. Um, so uh, we ask them uh, questions like, how likely is it for you to, uh, to be drowsy in the following normal life situations uh, from zero to three, sitting and reading, watching TV, et cetera, as you can see here on the slide. And so a, a number of zero to five says lower normal daytime sleepiness. But look at the numbers, 11 to 12, mild excessive daytime sleepiness, 13 to 15, moderate excessive daytime sleepiness, and 16 to 24, of course, that's, that's severe. So doing an Epworth on our patients is invaluable in trying to get at their tiredness symptom and giving you a numerical value on how sleepy they actually are during the course of the day. All patients that come in with tiredness um, should have an EPRO sleepiness scale. Now, another thing that's a very good one is a functional outcomes of sleep questionnaire. Uh, this is another one that's not very commonly done in primary care as much as, let's say, the Epworth, but it's a really good way of ascertaining the quality of sleep that a patient has uh, that's going on in their life. So the scoring measures functionality of patient in relation to their sleepiness. Uh, it measures the, the, uh, the health-related quality of life, and it consists of short 10-question survey. That, that's the, the FOSQ-10. But there's a longer version as well, but I think the shorter 10-question uh, version should be good enough for most situations. And this will give you a numerical value on the functional outcome of sleep questionnaire. And uh, we have a new uh, scale, don't we, that's become available to us that's uh, getting quite a lot of publicity at the moment. It's called the idiopathic hypersomnia severity scale. This doesn't actually diagnose uh, uh, idiopathic hypersomnia, but it certainly gives us some idea about the symptoms. Can you explain a little bit more about this IHSS, Paul? The idiopathic hypersomnia severity scale is getting a little bit more recognition, and I think that if we suspect our patient as having this, uh, we want to ask them the following questions. Uh, what is the, your ideal duration of nighttime sleep? Uh, uh, do you feel that you have not had enough sleep. So this is the nighttime symptoms. Um, uh, and as far as awakening, is it extremely difficult uh, to wake up in the morning? How long does it take for you to function properly uh, after you get to, uh, uh, after you wake up in the morning? And after awakening, do you ever have any kind of uh, irrational thinking or, uh, or, or are you very uh, clumsy and that, that kind of symptom? And, and finally, we talked about naps earlier. You know, we had it in one of our questions. Uh, do you ever take naps? And what is the ideal length of your nap? There's other questions as well, like uh, uh, how do you feel after a nap? And during a day, do you ever struggle to stay awake? Then there's burden questions. Uh, does your idiopathic or does your hypersomnia, does your excessive sleepiness, that how does it impact on your general health? Um, is your hypersomnolence a problem in terms of... Uh, uh, of, of properly intellectual functioning? Does it have an effect on, uh, on, your, uh, on your mood? Um, does it have any effect on you to, uh, to, to function properly throughout the day? Um, and does it have any effects on your driving? So depending on what score you get, 
this can give you a good idea about the possibility of idiopathic hypersomnia occurring in our patients. Again, gaining a lot of acceptance, you might want to reach for this in your patients who have excessive sleepiness where you're thinking that they may have uh, idiopathic hypersomnia. Yeah, so this can be a very useful scale. Uh, it doesn't actually diagnose uh, uh, idiopathic hypersomnia, but as you mentioned, Paul, it's very useful in giving us an understanding about the symptoms of idiopathic hypersomnia and can be used longitudinally to assess patients' progress, even after they've been diagnosed and are on treatment. Now, there are a lot of other uh, things that look like idiopathic hypersomnia that we need to exclude. Can you tell us a little bit about the differential diagnosis, Paul? Sure. So again, folks, we're talking here about the tired patient. Patients who come in all the time to your office that say, I'm tired, we need to ask them questions and to try to, to hone in on the diagnosis. Now, it could certainly be narcolepsy because narcolepsy does start in late teens and early 20s, uh, and they can complain of sleepiness. They can say things like, like uh, I'm sleepy all the time, I need to take naps all the time, and have unrefreshing sleep. So that could be possibility, but but uh, look for possible symptoms like cataplexy in these patients um, or hypnagogic hallucinations, hypnopompic hallucinations. Uh, these are some of the other features of narcolepsy. With obstructive sleep apnea, typically occurring in more uh, overweight and obese people with certain neck features, you might want to look at that as well. Uh, and these patients have snoring and, and other people in their household, including bed partners if they have one, can complain of them uh, snoring or even stopping breathing in their sleep. Now, a lot of patients are tired simply because they're not sleeping long enough. And that's where you have to get a good sleep history. How many hours of sleep are you getting? The average young adult needs around nine hours of sleep. As, as far as going into to adulthood, uh, eight hours may be enough, but certainly insufficient sleep syndrome is another one. Circadian rhythm disorders, which can occur in patients that do shift work, uh, that's also one of the things that we have to look at. So we ask our patients a good sleep history. Uh, does your nighttime sleep habits change in their hours or in their timing throughout your life? Now, mood disorders can also rob people of their, uh, of their energy, and it can give them tiredness. And it's a very good idea in these patients to look at the possibility of depression by doing a PHQ-9. Uh, there's also scales for anxiety, schizoaffective disorders, somatoform disorders can also be possibility. Not as common, but it is important to look at these possibilities. Always look at their medication list and also illicit drugs, okay? Look at the patient's medications. Are they on beta blockers? Are they on antidepressants that can cause uh, sleepiness? Uh, are they on blood pressure medications that can cause sleepiness? Uh, so these are some of the things that we have to look at, but also you do have to look at the possibility of substance abuse and ask frankly with their patients uh, what they could possibly be taking in in that category. Now, in some patients, they may have had traumatic brain injury. Uh, I see this in my practice with my uh, with college students. They can get concussions, and as a result of it, they can have tiredness and sleepiness. And in some cases, with a lot of of, uh, of, of brain injuries, they can have traumatic brain injury syndrome, which can occur for, for quite a long time, if not indefinitely. A chronic fatigue syndrome is another one of the possibilities, but in these patients, they're more fatigued than they are sleepy. They feel more lassitude than they feel drowsy, but it is another thing. So, so it's important to get a good sleep history uh, and also, by the way, do a good examination on our patients to hone in on the diagnosis. Mike? Yeah, now that we know a lot more about uh, the symptoms of idiopathic hypersomnia and which screening tools we might use, 
let's go back and take a look at uh, the case of Naomi. Now, she mainly complained about being tired all the time despite getting 10 hours of sleep. So uh, some of the things that we need to look at here are, is her tiredness uh, due to sleepiness? And as you mentioned, Paul, we need to determine if it's tiredness or just fatigue or is it actual sleepiness? And that's where that Epworth sleepiness scale that you mentioned can be very useful to give us an idea of is there actual sleepiness? Is she falling asleep at times she doesn't want to? And then with the hours of sleep, uh, uh, as you mentioned, some patients may have a circadian rhythm disorder where uh, particularly adolescents, they may be delayed and they may be getting up late, but they may not be falling asleep till three or four. So, so we need to look at the differential diagnosis. And for these 10 hours of sleep, is it 10 hours in bed or is it 10 hours of actual sleep? And if it's actual sleep, then we definitely have to start thinking about the idiopathic hypersomnia. So there are a number of uh, additional symptoms for idiopathic hypersomnia. The difficulty getting up, the unrefreshing naps, the sleep inertia, the brain fog that you talked about, Paul. Uh, so once we assess all these symptoms and we suspect that she has uh, idiopathic hypersomnia, which we do in Naomi's case, you know, there are, there are some other things that we need to rule out. She was depressed and uh, could this be due to depression? So we need to uh, look at that aspect of it. But if we really suspect that she has idiopathic hypersomnia, what would you do next, Paul? Uh, what, what tests should we move on to after doing these screening tests and the evaluation of the symptoms? Yeah, again, Mike, it's very important what you said, which is to do a good complete history and physical. You know, some patients may want you to do blood tests on them, and I think it's perfectly reasonable uh, to do a comprehensive metabolic uh, panel on them, including thyroid profile. They, they may feel very reassured that there's nothing wrong with them physically. It's not a bad idea to maybe even do iron studies, CBC, a B12 level, folic acid level. These are some of the tests that patients want to know are normal uh, before we go on. But once you think that they have idiopathic hypersomnia, once you think a patient has it, uh, you might want to consider either sending them to a sleep specialist or even doing sleep studies yourself. You might want to do a polysomnogram followed by a, an MSLT. These are some of the tests that you might want to do to help in, in assessing your patients, whether they could have another sleep disorder or whether they have idiopathic hypersomnia. Very good. Well, I, I hope that today's CMEO briefcase program has helped everyone develop a foundation for screening for idiopathic hypersomnia. So let's summarize our SMART goals. These are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely goals. So uh, in practice, the identification of patient symptoms, the quality of life factors, getting reports from family members, these are all very important in determining about idiopathic hypersomnia, and you should do it in your regular patient visits. Improve your screening practices for idiopathic hypersomnia. Uh, look at the burden that the condition has on the patient, and uh, Remember that these conditions occur in the pediatric age group and where it's often overlooked and missed. And so uh, be aware of these problems and the symptoms in the childhood age group. Use screening tools. There are a variety that we've talked about today that can effectively detect sleep disorders and streamline the referral process. And then once you've done that, develop an appropriate plan of action. So once you've excluded other conditions and you 
feel that you're dealing with idiopathic hypersomnia, uh, then consider what the next steps would be. And as you, as Paul mentioned, it's uh, uh, a matter of getting some polysomnographic study evaluation to be able to objectively document what's going on in, in, the, in these particular patients. So today's CMEO briefcase is part one of a three-part series of case-based activities that can be found on the Sleep Medicine Education Hub. I hope you'll check out the other two activities in the series. The Sleep Medicine Education Hub has these activities as well as many others on sleep disorders. So I thank you, uh, our audience, for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. DeGranchi. I appreciate your help and the expertise in this area. To receive CME CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation online. Otherwise, you're not going to get it. So you go online, complete that. You'll be able to download and print your certificate immediately upon completing the, the survey. Be safe. Take care of yourselves so that you can provide the best care for your patients. Thank you.